I don't see that in the life of Jesus. Jesus was, was, was his his ambition, his goal was not to make the Roman Empire a, a, a Christian empire. What his goal was was to find those who were sick and who were lost and would give them a greater hope than this world, a greater hope than the government before them, a greater reality, a greater life of what was to come. Welcome to this episode of the His Hill Podcast. My name is Kelly Darty, and I'm your host. You know, we live in a very interesting time in history where up is presented as down, wrong is encouraged to be right, and the lie is insisted to be truth. How are we as a church supposed to respond to this confusion? What is the role of the church? Is the answer to these issues found in the right party taking control of the government? It's been my observation that so many Christians believe this to be the answer, but is it really? His Hill Camp Director and one of our resident Bible school teachers, Connor Patterson, will explore this issue in this episode as he looks at the history of the church and its relationship with the government. Let's join him now and consider what he has to say to this from Scripture. As you've been following on, it's been quite a bit since we've done our last church history podcast. It was before summer even started, so uh, now that camp is done and my mind can be a little bit more attentive to podcasts and classes, things like that, we're, we're back. And so the last couple of podcasts that we've been dealing with in church history have kind of been revolving around the Council of Nicaea, as well as the one who called that council, that was Emperor Constantine himself. And so that was the last one that we did. And just a little bit about his life and the changes he made to the Roman Empire, which brought Christianity really out of the catacombs and, and into and onto center stage. And I think it's it's important to see that moment for what it was, what it is, and and what it can be, you know, that is Christianity being on the center stage. Is that good? Is that healthy? Is that right? And and most importantly, the question is, is that biblical? Is that what God wants for his people and for his bride, the church? So um, just kind of real quick to fast forward through a couple things. After Constantine dies, there is a pretty quick succession of emperors who follow in his footsteps, self-proclaimed, you know, quote unquote Christians. And again, we don't know their heart. We don't know what they, you know, truly have, have believed as that, you know, being self-proclaimed, but, um, but it, it continues on by, by title. Most follow just, yeah, directly in line with Constantine. There, there was one guy who was, who did quite the opposite. His name was Emperor Julian. He's actually Constantine's nephew. Um, and he kind of leads for a short season, a counter Christian, a pagan revival amongst, um, the Roman empire. And that doesn't go very long. He's quickly assassinated, like what happens to most emperors at that time. And it's brought back to the growing movement of Christianity. The ball's rolling and, and there's really no stopping it. And I think, you know, the empire is seeing that the emperors are seeing that it's spreading like wildfire to join would be to take part in what seems to be the future of the empire and to resist and hold on to paganism is, is simply to wallow in the past. So we, we fast forward to 8380 and we meet a man named Emperor Theodosius and he really seals the deal and brings about this question of Christianity being the official state 
religion of the Roman Empire. In AD 380, he seals the deal with that and makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Paganism would still be tolerated as decreed in the Edict of Milan that, that Constantine made. There's still the toleration of all religions, but the Roman gods were now considered a thing of the past. And it was the attention or turning the turning attention to Christianity as the official state religion. What does this mean? What does this look like for an empire? This has never happened before with the exception of the nation of Israel. So what does this look like coming out into a, you know, from a pagan culture? Um, and this is what we would call in the, in the States today, this is called, you know, the, the church state union. So we're going to deal with that a little bit as we, as we go on, what that looks like, you know, from this point and what that looks like in our, in our country uh, today. So where the nation has, has one religion, and they have tied themselves to that. That's what we call, you know, church-state union. That there is union there. There's there's oneness there. And I like to look at in the very beginning. What are the positives? If there, you know, are there, are there any positives in a in a church-state union back in 380? And then look at some of the things that were taken and abused, and that we would consider negatives. And then shift to, well, what is right for the church? today in a, in a biblical sense and really hopefully leave you to make the connection of, of what you think is, is right here. So the positives, what are the positive, you know, 8380 Emperor Theodosius comes on the scene and, and makes Christianity numero uno. What is that? What did that look like? What were the immediate effects? And the immediate effects were positive and they're, they're good. You know, persecutions pretty much cease. So you know, the, the, the unjust, the, the prevalent, the very commonplace, you know, putting Christians as the scapegoat of anything that you hate and just killing Christians with no rhyme or reason, that stops. And we praise God for that. You know, God is not a God who is unjust in the taking of life as part of his character. He does not unjustly take life especially the life of his people. Number two, one of the biggest things that changes for the positive is just a national defense of the faith from an empire or from the emperor. You know, that national defense gives attention. Why is he defending this religion? What is this religion? It really brings this faith and what this faith stands on. Where did it start? What are the differences of this faith from a Roman polytheistic and very, very immoral society? What do, what do Christians believe about marriage? What do Christians believe about things of morality like sex and, and how to raise a home? And what is the nuclear family union, unit? And you know, what does that look like in relationships and, and what they hold to and what they believe? And that brings a lot of attention. And that is great for the empire, uh, to come back to a moralistic society, which champions life which champions, the advantage of every single person being able to move through the ranks and have education and have healthcare and, and valuing life of the unborn value, the life of the one that was just born, uh, and, and being able to bring them into a, a society in which life can flourish. This is, this is right. And this is good. 
Churches were built all throughout the empire as the nation begins to spread. Every city begins to pop up and, and have a church. And through the, through the unity of the empire and the Pax Romana of the empire, there is much movement throughout the empire. And churches are spreading all that Rome has touched. And then finally, just worship of the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus, not just now spoken un, you know, below ground in secret, but now this is just in the marketplaces. This is in your homes. This is talking on the streets. I mean, the name of Jesus is beginning to spread just in common language and common talk um, as life begins to go on. These are all positives. These are all great things that um, Christianity becoming the, the state religion of the empire does promote. And I want to make sure that there are a mention, you know, there's right mention of, of what those positives are. The the positives, as good as they are, unfortunately, are quickly usurped by you know what we would call negatives, and and this unfortunately is what becomes the more lasting effect is is some of the things that are that are negative of this union there together, and the first one is that when Christianity and the empire become one. There's no separation between government and spiritual life of the church. Your convert your, your your reasons for conversion all of a sudden become very very unclear. And, and two authors really support this reality. Um, one author says it was only natural that many pagans turned to Christianity, not because their hearts were convinced and converted to the living God, but to gain position and to gain promotion. If there was any hope for any kind of promotion or any kind of advancement within the government, they needed to identify as a Christian. And so many people just began just to take that on by title, just to take that on. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Lots of wordplay, no transformation of heart. Another author said this, many came who were politically ambitious, religiously disinterested, and half-rooted still in paganism. This threatened to produce not only shallowness and permeation by pagan superstitions, but also the secularization and misuse of religion for political purposes. Now, surely that does not still happen today. And I don't know about wherever you are listening and if you're in a different nation, but in the United States, that is still very much at play. Up to this point, I'm not sure how much longer this is going to play out, but up to this point, every president of the United States has identified with a denomination of Christianity. Every political candidate, whether their heart knows Christ or not, understands the same point. We need the Christian vote. It, America is still you know, that is still the predominant religion. And if I do not identify with a form of Christianity outwardly, then I'm going to lose that vote. Position, prominence, but their character much rooted in darkness, paganism, superstition, secularization, misuse of religion still happening today. Where did that start? One of the foundations is here in 380. The second is that church authority begins to become very confused with imperial authority. Who's in charge? Is it the 
pastor? Is it the bishop of a church or is it the governor? Do they, are they both in charge? Who has more power than the other here? And we know with authority, authority corrupts or a power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely when it's held apart from Christ. And this is exactly what begins to happen. Just corruption of authority becomes it becomes increasingly an issue. Before long, one writer says, bishops ruled in large cities as pagan governors had done before. Now it's up to the church to set the principle, to set the standard for morality. But what if there's a difference of conviction? Who do you agree? Who do you follow? What do you do? And what if you break the law? <laughs> what does that mean for you? Are you kicked out of the church? Are you kicked out of the city? What is the power that the church has when it comes to, to a government position by obeying the laws of the land. This is unidentified in in Scripture. This, unfortunately, begins, this kind of authority and the corruption of authority begins an offense that we, we have in the church, really comes to light in the Reformation, and it's called investiture. Investiture. And investiture is an act of giving position or title to someone not because of their character or integrity, but because of their family or their political influence. And so in within the church, what begins to happen here is kind of on both ways, you have these governors and you have these bishops of these churches appointing one another, not because they love the Lord, but because they align with their opinion. They align with their family influence. They they align because they, they got money and they're going to be supported by that. They, they align to help promote their position of power. And so they, they're promoting friends, they're promoting allies, not because of character. So big foreshadow there of, you know, the authority of Rome that's coming in, this, this political and this spiritual power there of Rome and all the confusion therein that lies. The third is this this union of between the church and the state. Again, kind of taking on who is responsible then for the people. Is it the church or is it the state? Still a question that we ask today. Bruce Shelley writes, Thus the Christian church was joined to the power of the state and assumed a moral responsibility for the whole society. Constantine ruled Christian bishops as he did civil servants and demanded unconditional obedience to official pronouncements, even when they interfered with church matters. So as, a, as an individual, who, who do you obey? Who is your authority? Who is setting the laws? Who is setting the standards? And then most importantly, who's carrying those out? Hopefully what you're gathering here is just in this union Things don't become clearer. Things actually become more and more muddied. And the last one, but probably one of the, the, the saddest of all of these, is that the church became rich and powerful, not in the spirit of Christ, but by worldly standards. A, the, this is where you get this idea of a, of a rich corporate a corporation, a corporate mindset begins to come in to the church, and a worldly spirit enters it here. There are a couple things from both the, the positive and the negative of the list that I just shared that are, that are really interesting to me. They may not be interesting to you. Uh, hopefully the interest of, you know, my own interest of it kind of helps us think through some of these things and, and 
ask, it helps us to ask good questions and to think rightly about this. But you know, three things that stick out to me here. What takes place here sets a good and firm foundation for what is to come in Christianity. And we need to make no mistake about it. The, the, the actions of the church today not only have an effect on today, but it sets a principle, it sets an example for the days to come. This to come is going to be, as I just mentioned, the rise in the power and the abuse of power of the Roman Catholic Church. Because of this unity now, there will then be the call to follow then what is gaining, what seems to be popular in what is considered the church of the Roman Catholic Church, this power of spiritual matters, political matters, and moral matters. Not only does this, this is the second thing here, not only does the Roman Catholic Church take this and, and run with it, but you know, so will the Reformation. You know, remembering Luther, you know, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, these were all church state union guys as they saw it played out before them in the lives of the Roman Catholic Church. And in the Reformation, they did not, this was one of the points they did not take away from the Roman Catholic Church. They wanted just to amend it and make it better. They still had a church state union. Calvin, to the point where he will attempt for years to make Geneva a quote unquote heaven on earth type city, where they, through the government, are regulating both matters within the church, but also moral matters through the laws, regulating moralities through the pulpit. And there were some great positives of that. And there was a lot of change in that city, but there also became a lot of confusion. It doesn't last, A, and there begins to become a lot of questions on those who are making the laws and those who are making the power. And what if they don't uphold that rule? And it's, it's an interesting idea that tries to take place, but this side of heaven, we find corruption and sin taints it. There is no perfect city in a perfect theocracy this side of heaven. That will come in the new heaven, in the new earth, in the new Jerusalem where God reigns. But that has to only come where there is no more sin that corrupts power, that corrupts authority, you know, and that corrupts confusion. And the last one that interests me is how can this uh, be true in, in, in our culture today and how true it is in our culture, you know, today. Right now, I'm, you know, still recording this podcast. We're in Comfort, Texas. We live in the south of the United States of America. You may have commonly heard us called the Bible Belt. And I like to say that Texas is the big old belt buckle of that Bible Belt, the shiny belt buckle. And how often I have met people here in South Texas that have confused Christianity with conservatism. They've confused uh, being a follower of Jesus to, you know, their political party. They profess to be a Christian publicly, and then you would see them in church, but you find no change of life, no behavior, no ambition, or even the opposite, quite a worldly spirit about them as they talk as soon as they're outside of those doors. Even, you know, just politically, if you want to have a vote or stay a chance in, in, in Texas, you have to align with some sort of domination to get that to get that vote. This is there there is nothing new about what's going on around us today than what began 
then there's nothing new under the sun. So I want to really just focus in on here. So what does scripture say? What is what does God want of his people? What is the church's responsibility when it comes to government? Is union best? Is separation best? Does God's word even talk about it? So here's just a couple of verses to be thinking on. And then um, hopefully to answer that question a little bit. Matthew 16, 24 through 25, Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake finds it. This is the the backward or upside down kingdom of God. Uh, we call this addition through subtraction, where God is constantly bringing us to a more simple and pure worship of Christ more than the accumulation of power, the accumulation of title, the accumulation of glory. John 4.23 says, Jesus says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. A God who wants his people from all time, from all cultures, of all genders, of all position, of all places, to come and worship him in spirit and in truth. Not to gain from it. Not so that my life will be better. Not so that you know, I can even know the, the, the blessing of, of heaven. That's just a bonus. But because I want to know him. Eternal life is this that you know me, John 17. Paul speaks into this matter. He says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exhortation of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Who gets the glory? Who gets the glory by my action, by my place, by my thinking, behavior? Who is receiving the glory? Paul says our citizenship is not meant to be kept and held on to here on this earth. What lies before us in the transformation of Christ and his glory being exerted by his power and that all things are subject to him. This is, this is what God is doing in his people. He is conforming us to his image and his power. There's an amazing verse. This is it on my notes? It just kind of came to mind. You know, one verse I, I, I love in the Psalm, Psalm 115, the very first verse, the writer says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory because of your loving kindness and because of your truth. That verse, when I first stumbled across it, you know, just really had a, had a big impact on me. And I think what the writer was saying there, he's, he's identifying this reality of when, when man receives the glory of God, it does not make us better. It destroys us. We want more of it. 
the flesh takes it and and revels in it. And so we we want more glory, we want more position, we want more power, we want more title, we want more influence. And it's selfish ambition at the very heart of it. And the writer sees that and says, God, protect us from that. Protect us from receiving the glory that is only due to you. Because when God receives glory, he doesn't take and hoard and is corrupted by it. Quite the opposite. When he receives glory, he blesses, he distributes, he gives greater grace for those who are praising his name. It doesn't corrupt him. It really brings out the fullness of his holiness. So the actual other verse I had was First um, Peter chapter 2, and this is probably the, the clearest of, of all the verses reading about who we are as the people of God in this society, in the governments that we are living in. And in First Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he writes, Beloved, I urge you, and here are the, the nouns that he uses, as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Sojourn, one translation says sojourners and strangers, aliens, those realizing this is not the be-all end-all for the church. We look forward to the coming of Christ. So what is our place now? If our end, we know, is, 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 is not here, it's not this world, it's not this nation, what is our hope? And what is our responsibility while we wait for the coming of the Lord? And that's, I think, the, the biggest question I want to really answer here at, at the end of this podcast. Um, you know, I want to speak to the founding fathers of, of the American nation, you know, we are the great experiment where, you know, no other nation started out with such freedoms and such just freedom of expression as America had. And we're, you know, over 250 years into this experiment and it's, uh, it's, uh, the yield is interesting. Uh, I don't want to say good, negative, bad, good, ugly. I don't know quite yet, but the, the founding fathers of this country saw this reality in history, this, this confusion of the church and the state becoming one. And I have to say, I think they're wise beyond their years because in the constitution, they wrote against this. And that's what we call the separation of church and state. And the founding fathers said in America, you have the freedom of religion, the freedom to worship, but that the church and the state are separate entities. They're separate powers. They are, they are separate positions here because they saw how much confusion was happening from England, right? With with all that was happening in the Anglican Church and the King and having his own religion, and then from Roman Catholicism, and then before that, even in the Roman culture. The goal of the founding fathers was not to make a Christian country. And I don't think that should be ours either. I don't see that in the life of Jesus. Jesus was was, was his his ambition, his goal was not to make the Roman Empire, a, a, a Christian empire. What his goal was, was to find those who were sick and who were lost and would give them a greater 
hope than this world, a greater hope than the government before them, a greater reality, a greater life of what was to come. It doesn't mean we don't have a place. I just wrote down a couple things that I think you know scripture speaks to of the role of the church while separated from the government. The first one is submission. Uh, Romans 13 speaks to this. First Peter speaks to this. And there was uh, one man in, in history named Justin Martyr, and, and he'll go on to, as an apologist, go on to defend this point that Christians should be every nation's best citizens. If you've had my class, you, you, you heard me say that. That we as Christians should be every nation's best citizens. Because it takes the point of what Jesus says to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to not get around it, not to usurp that, not to fight against it. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But most importantly, render to God what is God's. Render our heart, that is God's, to God. And from rendering our heart to God, we are able to render to Caesar what is Caesar in whatever country you know that we are under. And of course, there's the exception is unless they are directly going against the laws of God there. But even in, in, in our country today, to have the freedom of submission, most importantly, that we are submitted to God. He's our authority. He is our king. And that's what allows me to submit to the laws of the land, whether I like them or not. What is the church's responsibility? Submission. is to pray. It's to pray for the nation's health. It's the spiritual health more than anything for those who are in this nation to see the light of Christ, for the leaders to uphold God's justice. Now, I think the expectation there, we, we, we can't get too far ahead of ourselves. We want to represent the justice. We want to represent the character of God. And we pray that the leaders of our country would do that. But we cannot be surprised when people whose hearts are not transformed by the glory of God make decisions that do not represent the glory of God. We cannot be surprised when, when, when that is the case. We have to understand sin is going to yield sin. A fallen heart, a corrupted heart is going to yield corruption. Whereas a redeemed heart and a good tree should be yielding good fruit and, and what is right of Jesus. And therefore, we as a church, we are practicing justice. We are living humbly. We are speaking the truth when we have a place. I think of, you know, God calling Jonah to the Ninevites, that those who would hear would repent and would find their one true lasting citizenship and king to be a just, a perfectly faithful king who doesn't go again, you know, doesn't walk back his, uh, you know, strategies of when he takes office, but he is true. He is not a liar. He does exactly all that he promises in a character that is pure, upright, and holy. Ezra speaks that the church is to seek the preservation of the nation. How do we do that? By upholding the laws, by voting, by supporting the government, even when we may not agree with someone. I know a lot of people when, you know, when Donald Trump took office here in the United States, took everybody by surprise, honestly. And uh, Donald Trump takes office and there's this line that begins to circulate throughout social media, quote, not my president, end quote. 
I'm sorry, it, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> like it or not, you know, sometimes you win in voting and sometimes you lose in voting. Uh, you, sometimes you get the guy, sometimes you don't get the guy. A kingdom that is divided cannot stand. And listen, I, there's there's things that, you know, Donald Trump did and was as a person. I don't love that. There's things that, you know, President Biden did and you know, what he stands for. I don't love that. But if I want to see the glory of God through me and the church, it does not stand just by promoting all that is negative in opposition. The glory of God, again, is to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but most importantly, to render God what is God's and to support and to uphold the law and to vote when I don't agree with someone but to most importantly, make sure that my behavior is excellent among the Gentiles, to make sure that what I'm saying is not defaming the name of Christ, to make sure that even if my guys in office are not, that we are still called to be practicing what God has laid out in his law, helping the widow, speaking for the orphan in their distress. You know, the church saw this as their responsibility, not the government's responsibility, to help people who were in need around them and therefore to show the generosity of the character of God and not just to cast that onto the government. All that to say, listen, there is a whole lot of confusion that we live in now because of those who have gone before us. You know, what is the role of the church compared to the state? And yes, there's still a lot of confusion because yes, we are not in the new heaven, in the new earth, in the new Jerusalem. There is corruption, even by those who call themselves Christians. We can't change one another, but what we can do is live and walk in a manner that is worthy of the name of Christ. And that is what God has called his church to in every nation in every time is to represent the name of Christ well. And in so doing, that might have a really positive effect on the secular nations that we live around. And it might not. Nations come and go. No nation is promised tomorrow. No nation is promised tomorrow unless, you know, you hold the theology of, of Israel, which, you know, again, I, I personally do. No country has a promise of life forever with God. God is for his people. God is for the rescuing, the salvation, the sanctification, and to be faithful to his people, not just to one nation. And so we as a people of God, while we are in the countries that we live in, what is most important is representing the name of Christ well, keeping our behavior excellent, proclaiming the excellencies of those who have called us out of darkness so that others who are in that country and in that culture might know the saving life of Christ now and forevermore. They would know the one true king above corruption. They would want, they would know the kingdom that serves rather than being serves, that gives life rather than takes life, that blesses 
rather than receives in corruption. And God is long-suffering in waiting to return so that many who will believe will come to faith and he is using not America, not Canada, not Brazil. He is using the church. He is using his people in this world, in the countries that we are in, that the glory of Christ may be seen through us. So personally, I am for the you know the 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 separation of, of church and state. I think that really does help us draw a line in the sand to make a you know Texan illustration there of what we believe, why we believe it, no matter what that cost may be. So if you have any questions or thoughts on that, um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be necessarily support. You can say, hey, I may not agree with this. And can you maybe add some more uh, context to this? Or I have, you know, a question about this. Um, I told Kelly I'd like to just to make a, just a real general announcement there. Feel free to message Kelly um, or even call us at his cell. Love to be able to talk and, and exchange emails and be able to continue this conversation and hear back from you guys so um please feel free the line is is open for whatever you guys want to hear and talk about kind of from these sessions great thanks so much i want to thank connor for being with us this week and i want to remind you that we have other episodes of connor leading devotions from church history and adding application from scripture so be sure to look those up well we're off to another good start with bible school I was given the privilege of teaching during the first week and can say that the Lord has given us another great group of students. And as a whole, they are showing themselves to be a group who want to hear and deal with God's truth as found in Christ. So please be praying for them this year. These students and most of the staff are on a fall service trip this week. So please, again, be praying for them that it be a profitable time in Christ and that those they are serving would be encouraged to Jesus. Our Thanksgiving conference speakers this year will be Torchbearer's General Director, Peter Reed, and former Capenry Hall Principal and Toronto's People's Church Pastor, Charles Price. If you want to attend the conference, please know that you are very much welcome. However, you also need to know that all the His Hill accommodations and spots for the meals are full. This being said, you are more than welcome to sit in on the sessions for free. You are also more than welcome to contact the office and get your name on the waiting list for the possibility of getting in should there be any cancellations. My name is Kelly Darty, and if you would like to get in touch with me, you can do so by email. My address is kelly at hishill.org. That's Kelly spelled K-E-L-L-Y. Remember to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. We'll see you next week.